Hi, and welcome to Drafting Compliance. I'm Kane, he's Tom, and we talked about contingency planning last time. We're talking about identification and authentication today, but first we're talking about beers. Tom, what is this? It looks like a paint can. Yeah, uh, and I think that's an apt uh, description of it. It's called uh, Color Cloud Pink. And I'm going to just read you the description on this beer, Kane, because, um, you know, on the surface, I think you're going to like it. It's a Berliner Weiss, which is wheat Sounds with German. pink guava, dragon fruit, and passion fruit. Oh, so it's going to, it should be somewhat fruity. Now, we'll warn you that a Berliner Weiss is, is a sour. So oh, no. you've got that to look forward to. Uh, okay thanks i'm 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 saying i mean there's not much to see on this can i mean it's no i mean i do like the i I do like the uh, the the picture it's basic iconography that's that's kind of cool i'm sure we'll have a professional shot it does have a qr code on the back so that's this is from uh equilibrium brewing which is i think a new york brewery if i'm not mistaken all right so well let's um let's have a go and see what it's about i'm cracking it Oh my! It already looks interesting. It looks now, like you haven't had this before. You, I'm, I'm guessing. I've never this, had this. Some of these no. beers, you know. What the? Yeah, this. This looks like ecto cooler or something. Sorry, I mean, this like is like you'd... straight up pink. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and it's got a, it's got a smell. I don't think the uh, I don't think the camera picks up just how is pinkish a, red this is. Is this a beer, Tom? I mean, this looks like those well, those coolers that you can get in the summer, right? It's a it's a malted beverage, so it's a malted <sighs> uh, alcoholic beverage. So yes, it's a beer. It's brewed, but uh, this passes well beyond what I typically would drink. Tom, that's so. Says, let's just look uh, that, at it. That, that, that according to you says that Ole is a beer now. Ole. Oh, don't you don't you don't have old English where you are. Okay, cool. We'll move on past that uh, West Coast reference. Okay. Um, so I think yeah, let's try to appreciate the weird color of this. It yeah. is almost. It, it has a pretty thin color. head. It, it disappeared very quickly. Well, uh, from a smell perspective, it is very fragrant. Yeah, smells bitter. I mean, it's yeah, it's got it's got a bitter s- smell. It's also got you can definitely something fruity in there. If you could smell sour, you I would say this smells sour. Yeah, you smell fruit. I, I smell dragon Sour fruit, I fruit. Think, more than anything. How often do you eat dragon fruit? Because I'm trying to think of the last time I had a dragon fruit. You know, my daughter picks up odd fruit everywhere we go oh. and wants us to try it. So I've actually had it more than star fruit, dragon fruit, passion fruit. I've had all of it. Cool. Cool. All, all right. right. I'm going to taste it. Very sour. Oh. Oh. Very fruity. Oh. I don't have nearly the the reaction to something I don't like that you that you that do. bit me. <laughs> That's my favorite reaction so far, Kane. Oh. So true fact, I don't like those like you know those Sour Patch Kids that you could get like when you're when you're in grade school. Like I do not like sour things, and that yeah, is my second drink was better than my first. Okay, I um I feel like. Lucy with the football here. So you can't help but get the sour when you first drink it, but yeah. if you let that pass, you do taste the fruit. Which is 
is no. more interesting than I would have given it credit for initially. Oh no! Oh. I don't taste the guava in that at all, but I do taste passion fruit, and I do taste. Okay, I'm getting the passion fruit, fruit now. Fruit, so. Yeah, it's got kind of a lingering yeah. aftertaste. It's it's not yeah. very bubbly either. It's like, um, yeah, I would I would agree with that. There's not there, there's, there's just a, not a lot. There's a winery in uh, where the heck is that place? It's south of me. There's a winery that's south of me, and they do a lot of fruit wines. And um, for a while there, like friends kept bringing them, and they all kind of tasted like this. They had like a cranberry wine. Mm. It was uh, meant to be served oh. cold and um, kind of similar, but not as it, it didn't have the skunky taste to it as well. Wonder what my review number is going to be on this one. Mm. It's going to be an odd one, Tom. This has grown on me just a little bit. I'm not going to lie. It's not my favorite, but um, my initial reaction was pretty low. This is this has grown on me a little. All right. Well, you're going to work on that. I have uh, I've had mine. Um, yeah. Okay. You had well, your, your fill. Oh, uh, uh, some poor friend of mine is going to come around and find a can of this lurking in my garage and go, "Why did you have that?" And I'll have to explain. It's for work. That's right. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on. Let's move on to um, our our topic of the day. And uh, Tom, what is the identification and authentication control family in FedRAMP Moderate? What's it all about? Yeah, I would say you know if we wanted to cut through the the Latin that is NIST language, we would just call this the the password and authentication um, control set, right? Because there's going to be lots of common controls that everybody implements underneath identification and authentication. It's going to give you your prescriptive requirements around passwords, for instance, which everybody already knows. Everybody almost uniformly has implemented, but it's also going to give you some controls around things like uh, external devices for authentication or secondary means of authentication. And what are those appropriate, how are those appropriately controlled? What is appropriate to use in terms of, of cryptographic um, controls around it. So there's lots of things interesting wrapped around it. The, you know, the one thing, Kane, that I will say that I think might surprise folks is when you're going through the the kind of routine password controls, you'll find out that they do not require uh, password changes on any uh, given schedule. And that's because NIST, um, you know, quite a few years ago now actually adopted the idea that we don't need to change passwords, that it's actually more insecure as long as you build a, an initially secure password. Yep. Use two-factor authentication. Yep. It is more insecure to rotate passwords than it is to to be stat static. So I I still see you know I I look in in the in the wild at other people's controls if they're oh publicly yeah and it, it tends to be awful. I mean I, I always tell people yeah. just go read NIST NIST 863B. I'm sure we'll put a link to that in the show notes. But um, yeah, go read NIST 863B and also. One other thing that I like about InFedRAMP Moderate is that they include user identity and multi-factor authentication for users, but they also include the category of device identity. And for those who are working towards a zero trust approach towards security, which despite the marketing hype is actually a legitimate strategy, um, you'll find device identity and user identity are treated separately and that is very intentional. So I like that FedRAMP Moderate had that inclusion yeah, for sure. I mean, the the idea that you do not authenticate devices 
um, you really open yourself up to a, a whole host of new vulnerabilities, right? I mean, essentially, if you're not authenticating the device, you do not know if the device that is connecting meets all of the other controls that you've already um, deemed as necessary, right? So uh, making sure that the, the inventory of devices that you have are getting patched and have the appropriate antivirus on it and whatever other controls you put on it mm -hmm. before you actually uh, approve its authentication capability, that's, that's critical. And it's, you know, when you're a SaaS uh, company, that's even more critical. Definitely. Because right? you're, you're now connecting remotely, uh, potentially to a back end through VPN or whatever, but mm -hmm. still, uh, you want to have those controls in place. So I, I want to just double down on this one because um, I think a lot of people might look at this and think passwords and they might miss device identity or they might miss some of the nuance. And um, FedRAMP is very, as you said, prescriptive. I've read the assessment criteria. They are very intentional in that. But um, Tom, can you explain why these particular controls, again, within identification and authentication, are critical to the overall framework, not just this one control family? I can. And, you know, what's interesting to me uh, about this is folks will just kind of stop at the password level and, and they'll kind of forget that there's all of this meat behind it, right? But in general, this is the, the, um, the key to the front door, essentially, right? So if you don't control... You know, we talk about defense in depth and we talk about controlling your perimeter. But if you don't control the person that can unlock that perimeter and have a good understanding of who that person is and are they authorized and um, do they have maybe a second form of authentication, which is prescriptive in, in FedRAMP as well, then essentially you're saying anybody who has just one simple key can get in. It's not only um, that. Know, we, it's not just they can get into your perimeter, Tom. It's they can do stuff inside of that perimeter through step-up authentication, right? Because in my right. house, I could have, for example, a locked safe, right? And using that analogy, I'd say inside of your authorization boundary, you may have assets or enclaves that are, require additional privilege to get into, right? Yeah, that that's correct. I mean, essentially, when, once you're in, you have legitimate use case inside of that space and you are no longer underneath the purview of potentially a bunch of tools that are set, set there to monitor because you're authenticated and you're in, right? So getting that piece of it correct is so critical. I mean, I, I think everybody understands that point, but I think they still miss the nuance, right? They miss the idea that authentication just isn't a person. It's, it's mm -hmm. also the device in which the person is coming in. And certainly that's based upon the role in which they play in the organization as well. We don't particularly get concerned about the user of our system Right. We don't authenticate their device, but the developer of our system, we absolutely want to authenticate their device. Anybody who works past the sort of the front door of our application, we absolutely need to authenticate device wise. Definitely. And I, in order to illustrate some of this nuance, I've I've picked a selective set of controls. Uh, and so I want to focus on some specific controls. Um, IA2 subsection 2. Right, we're already getting weedy. IA2 subsection 2 deals with network access to non-privileged accounts. Uh, could you help us understand the importance of that control and the risks associated with non-privileged accounts if they're not properly authenticated? Sure. Again, we're talking about non-privileged accounts, which means they are not the heightened God-type people inside of an application. They're yeah, generally end just user. straight end user, correct. But again, when you get in, 
like you can like if you think about an application like what we produce, right? Hyperproof. When you get in, you have access to data because that is what the application is all about, right? So an end user to our application has some access to data that you would say is well, the federal government would say is CUI or classified or FCI, information. right? One of the two, yeah. maybe. Yeah, or something or CUI, else, correct? Or um, they have the access to things like potentially some HR data, right? That that not just everybody normally has access to. Well, when you have somebody who authenticates in that is just a, a, a regular user, you want to put additional authentication capabilities around that user just because the ability to get to extra data, right? Again, when, when it's not just our application we're talking about, they have the ability to land and expand inside that space as well. And that's what you want to prevent, right? Land and expand, meaning that if they are somebody who has uh, everyday user credentials, but they're bad guy, they get in, they can start to exploit other vulnerabilities within the system that the perimeter prevents them from exploiting. Oh, yeah. And, and it's worth doubling down on that point as well in that any competent threat actor is going to immediately move out of their landing zone. Um, the fact that they just happen to have that as their LZ, that's not their target. They're going to move onwards to glory, whatever that might be, often through the uh, compromise of a non-privileged and then working towards a privileged account. And, and speaking of that, Let's let's talk about some uh, scenarios here. Can you give us a real world scenario where an organization could fail to meet IA two subsection two requirements and the uh, potential repercussions of, the, of such a failure? Well, this is a case where I think auditors will be very stringent. So I would say on identity and authentication in general, it's not just IA two, but uh, you know auditors are going to look very closely at this control set. They're going to demand a high level of adherence to it. Um, not that they don't across the control set family, but um, you know, areas of focus are a real thing with auditors, and this would be an area of focus in my mind. You know, they they want to make sure that you know, as we use the analogy, of the front door, right? They want to make mm -hmm. sure that you guys have secured the front door, um, and so I, I would say this is a critical set. And if you're not complying to it, you're gonna get uh, dinged. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure the level in which um, you know audit will essentially shelve you for this, but um, if it's if it's a poem, you'll have 180 days to resolve it. Um, but you know they may halt at that point and say, um, "You guys have work to do. This is a simple set of controls." All right, I want to move to another set of um, kind of a pet topic of mine, uh, and it's because I was working with smart cards, smart cards before the uh, proverbial. PIVCAC uh, piv cards. So I want us to move on to um, control IA2 subsection 12, where it talks about personal identification verification compliant credentials, or PIV. So what are PIV credentials, and um, how do they add an extra layer of security? Yeah, PIV, a PIV credential is something you have. Um, in the federal government, you would think of PIV as pot potentially a uh, a card with a chip in it that can be a PIV. Uh, you know, has your picture on it and maybe some other details. But a PIV can also be something you have, like your eyeballs or your fingertips, uh, right? It can be a biometric control. Um, I don't know why they go out of their way to make the language difficult to understand, but it's 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 that simple. So there's no magic behind it. It's it's an authenticator, um, a secondary authenticator that you have of some variety. So PIV can be used in multi-factor authentication. Correct. Okay, fantastic for for humans, and I imagine. That that's right. And um, you know, I think about some of the PIV solutions that you've had in 
uh, in this space in the past and they've come and gone, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. largely, uh, you know, we're dealing with biometrics or, or potentially uh, a random generator on a phone. But, you know, for anybody who carried around those, um, those little devices that random generated from RSA. Oh, the old RSA fobs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was watching a television show the other day, actually, uh, Rabbit Hole, and they had one of those in it. And I was like, wow, that's a callback to a long time ago. Yep, yep, for sure. Yeah, haven't seen one of those in the wild for a while. Of course, when RSA got uh, hacked, that sort of, bit, sort of was an end to yeah. seeing those in general. Yeah, everybody. Well, I had one melt on a dashboard at a car I had parked out in the sun in Arizona, and I went, oh, this has got some physical vulnerabilities to it. Uh, yeah, you just don't see those anymore. But good to know that PIV can now be used for multi-factor authentication, and it doesn't have to be a classic PIVCAT card because the readers on those were they were fidgety. Um, let's, let's move on to uh, IA3, which refers to device authentication and authentication. Uh, you talked a bit about this at the top of the show. Can you walk us through the importance of device identification in the context of network security and the potential threats if it's not adequately addressed? Yeah, again, this is the device in which you authenticate from and whether or not you want to allow that on network, right? So essentially, again, if, if you think about it, that device can be either a controlled or uncontrolled device. And anytime you're dealing with a controlled, secure network where you've got FedRAMP involved, you want to make sure you know what that device is and you've already exerted controls over it. That's what really this is about. So what, what does that look like? Well, it, you know, it looks like having the right antivirus on it and, you know, having, uh, you know, encryption and in heart in a hardened baseline configuration it's those kinds of things that's what you're going to want to make sure is certified before those devices get on so essentially as you move through your asset life cycle and you and you put a new device in play all that stuff gets configured it gets an agent on it and then that um that identification or that hardware identification gets input into the system and it might be a combination of things generally it's like a mac address right that sure that uh, verifies that device. But I've seen other, it, you know, if you have a full on NAC or something like that in your environment that verifies a number of different attributes, that's possible as well. Yeah, and I've also seen in um, companies' incident response plans that if devices are on network inside perimeter or inside boundary, depending on terminology and use of the organization, right? They're given a time to be kind of black holed and if nobody can identify them, they just get evicted. Uh, and the reason for that was the risk of implants in those environments, which were uh, network attached devices that nobody could identify that could be yeah. being operated by an unknown operator, which you know, sometimes is adversarial, sometimes is shadow IT, as you say. Yeah, yeah, that that's right. I mean, we in my career, we found devices that um, you know, we thought were potentially you know, s something maliciously in intent. Mm -hmm. it, usually it ends up being, oh, the, you know, the director of something was in town and left it plugged in in a conference room and then left town and, you know, it's that kind of a device. But certainly, you know, in high espionage centric markets or businesses, this is a real threat. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's something that has to be considered, um, you know, critical to, to control. Right. Right. Definitely. All right. I want to focus on another specific control. I want to focus on IA5, which 
Uh, it has some obtuse language, Tom. It discusses authenticator management. So uh, can you pl please tell us what authenticators are? Because not everyone's going to be familiar with that term. And how the complexity and management of those authenticators can really impact a security posture for an organization? Sure. Authenticators are a number of things, but they're largely whatever it is that you can authenticate with. So passwords, hardware devices, biometrics, whatever it is that you're authenticating with, mm -hmm. that is an authenticator. So I believe that uh, the FedRAMP, uh, you know, th this section, the identification and authentication kind of breaks it out, right? So up, up top is all the password requirements. So when they get down and they start talking about authenticator and IA5, they're more, more often than not, they're talking about hardware-based authenticators. So it's things like your random number generator, which is something we use, right? Um, uh, you know, on our right on our laptops or on our phones or whatever we want to use it. Mm -hmm. um, that's our secondary means. But uh, the reality is, is the term authenticator. It seems like it's one of those uh, words that uh, NIST threw into their into their uh, pile of language that nobody else uses in the industry. <laughs> yeah, and that's what so I wanted to pick to, on it there because it is it does yeah. feel a bit foreign, right? Because some people I've also met folks who just think it means passwords, and they don't think, as you said, it could include a hardware-based authenticator or a time-based authenticator like a rotating random code. Yeah. But those also have that to be managed, be. and um, I imagine there's a bit of life cycle in there too, right, Tom? Not just not so much for passwords because of NIST 863B, but if we issue somebody a time-based token, and let's say it's like one of those RSA key fobs, just think of those, we have to have a way of deprovisioning those or um, retrieving them from people who are no longer requiring that access, right? That's right. And not only that, but you have to have a way to to dole them out as well. Okay. And th that's all prescribed in this control set. So how do you get them and how do you deprecate them or is both described in the control set. So you have to have some controls around that, as you should anyway. These are best best practices and you know, just put in a prescriptive manner, right? So yeah, if you don't if you don't have that already, uh, be prepared as you implement FedRAMP. You'll you'll have to have those in place. Fantastic, and I think we've probably covered enough on things for FedRAMP moderate for identification and authentication. Uh, there are a few other ones in there that go to FedRAMP high, but we're not going to talk about those today. Instead, I want to talk about what I've been staring at on my table. Um, <laughs> let's, usually I, let's at the end of the show, I oh dear. I've actually I, uh, I still have some left in the can. can. That. Yeah. Um, so hold up, I've, hold I've up, actually, hold up. Okay, yeah, I didn't all fit. I had. Yeah. Okay. Well, there we are. I've had that yeah. much. <laughs> okay. Usually yeah, at the end of the show, I do have another sip, uh, just to see how its taste has changed over time. So um, here goes. Nope. It's still a one. It's. <laughs> I need to brush my tongue after this. This is that is yeah, genuinely well, terrible. This a, is this is a one. Um, I don't know if I've given a one before on the Tom on this Tom Tom. This I can barely talk. It is that bad. This is a one for me, okay. my opinion. What about you? Okay. Well, obviously you don't like sours, so uh, that's a an initial sort of mark against it. I don't love sours, although I can drink them and there's been a couple that I really like. So I'm going to be a little more favorable to this. Um, I will say when I initially drank it, it was um, something I, I could choose to not drink again. 
Um, afterwards, though, it opened up a little bit, and I and I got to see some of the character in it. So I would give this a four, largely based upon the fact that I do not, I don't typically drink sours, so that takes again takes some points off. But uh, this opens up, you get to taste some of the character in it, and if you like sours, I suspect you will like this. You know, Tom, I think we might have to check the tape. This might actually be our lowest rated beer. I can't think of anything mm. you've given with less than a, like a five. Yeah, that could be. I feel like there's one where we were both three, but I, I could, oh, be, could be. Yeah, I mean, we have had a number of beers now. Well, anyhow, other people can check the tape too. Just it's uh, pl please do. Um, with that, I think we've hit time for today. So if you've enjoyed the show, please do like and subscribe. Leave comments and the que and questions below. And with that, we're out. So thanks for watching. <laughs>